Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of the mouth. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. A place like the Middle East is constantly changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Today's conversation is with a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. Garth Callender was Australia's first serious casualty of Iraq when his vehicle was hit by an improvised explosive device. But that didn't stop Garth from going back to the Middle East in uniform, twice. I'm Angus Horden and I'm joined today by Garth Callender. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Garth. My pleasure. Thanks, Angus. Garth, why did you join the army? So I joined the army in 1996 and actually it's not so much why I joined the army, it's why I stayed in the army, I think, which is probably the most pertinent question. I I joined almost straight out of school and was directionless and to be honest, nothing was happening in the army at that stage. I chose to stay in the army, actually chose to apply to Duntroon to go to officer training because I saw a lot of opportunities in the military, professional development opportunities. And to be honest, it it wasn't long after I'd gone to Duntroon that 9-11 occurred which I always say I think is when, you know, reality for my generation suddenly got serious. After eight years in the army, you're gearing up for Iraq. What's your role at that point and what is it like training for that deployment? So I was a second year lieutenant, so I'd been out of Duntroon for a couple of years. I'd done all the training to take a step back. So I'd been in charge of about 30 soldiers and six armoured vehicles. So that was my role as a cavalry troop leader was to work in... um, well, traditionally it's medium range reconnaissance, so out in vehicles forward of the main body doing um, quite you know, stealthy reconnaissance work. As stealthy as you can get in an armoured vehicle, it just means you can travel long distances and you're, mm. you're somewhat more self-sustainable than, um, than somebody just with a, a, a pack and, and rifle. But yeah, so midway through, um, or in fact quite early in 2004 that we got the nudge that my troop would be going to Iraq and then went on to Iraq-specific training. So we were based in Darwin at the time. I was in the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. And we did a lot of work around Darwin trying to replicate what we'd be doing in Iraq. Our role over there was protecting the diplomatic staff in Baghdad and allowing them to carry out the diplomatic function. So my team itself provided the diplomatic staff protected mobility around Baghdad. So after a long training period and your deployment to Iraq in 2004, your first task is this pickup mission in an ASLAV. But... Can you tell us what an ASLAV is, please? It's a 13-tonne, eight-wheeled armoured vehicle, so high-hardened steel chassis. Uh, that's um, you know, about a, a centimetre thick all round. It's, whilst it's, it's you know, 13 tonnes sounds quite heavy, it's, it's a light armoured vehicle compared to a 70-tonne to a tank, and it's designed to be used off-road, so it will work in eight-wheel drive and it'll take you pretty much across any terrain. There are three different variants. One's the Type 1 or the gun car, they call it, which has a two-man turret and a 25-millimetre chain gun, so quite a serious fighting vehicle. The other is the personnel carrier, so capable of carrying eight troops in the back. And then you also have a fitters and recovery, so your mechanics vehicles. How was that first operational drive through the streets of Baghdad? So I left 
the Baghdad International Airport right in the peak of summer, so blisteringly hot. And I yeah, just remember thinking this is going to be hard work, working in this temperature for the next few months. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't really have a good understanding of the environment in regards to even the infrastructure and the sewer systems throughout the city, as well as electricity and water were problematic to say the least so you'd, you could you know stand around the city and hear the grid of power clunk off from one suburb and clunk on for another sewage was very similar and that first trip in from the airport we basically hit a pool of raw sewage in the middle of the road which came and, and all over the top of the vehicle and got me in the face the other guys driving knew all about it and so they ducked down behind the armored protection but being the new guy i didn't get it and uh yeah it left me a bit shaky for the rest of the day Your operations meant that there were a lot of aggressive patrols through the streets and you always wanted to be with your men right in the thick of it. Yeah, I think it's a natural for any commander. So my role was a lot more coordination from a command post perspective than I probably would have liked. So it was managing the movements of of those diplomatic staff. So it meant that I was spending a lot of time sitting behind a desk managing schedules and talking to my guys and coordinating their movements to make sure it all fit together as opposed to actually being in a turret of a vehicle driving around. But what I did do was try to get out at least once a day, give one of my crew commanders a break and take his vehicle for a, for one of the jobs of the day for numerous reasons. One, you know, to check on the guys, see how they're going, see how they're performing on the road. But I guess also because I was a young bloke really keen to be out there doing the job on the roads rather than sitting behind a desk. So I imagine these patrols didn't sit well with the locals, especially if their car got nudged along the way. No, that's right. Um, it, it didn't. And in 2004, we were, we were living amongst the population. So we were what they'd call the red zone. So we were in a building which we provided our own security. We had, you know, some berms and some walls around the place to fr- provide us some security, some physical security. But basically we had machine gun posts manned around the place to provide our own intimate security and security for the embassy, which was adjacent to us. But it meant that, yeah, across the road was a family living in a, a suburban house, basically. So you can imagine if you had armoured vehicles driving up and down your street every day it would take its toll on your patients and particularly because every now and then our antennas would rip down power lines and phone lines and things like that we really had to manage the local population well in a lot of ways they provided us some security as well they would tell us what was happening in the suburbs they would tell us if anything unusual was happening another part of your question yes we're out on the road all day every day we did move quite aggressively on the road and we did nudge vehicles out of the way quite often we uh we really just made sure that we never got stuck in traffic. We never wanted to sit in a traffic jam because you're extremely vulnerable if you're wedged in traffic. So, yeah, we would do quite interesting things out on the road. We, we would drive on the wrong side of the road. We'd drive on footpaths. We would drive fast. So the great thing about the ASLAB as well is it will do 110 kilometres an hour. So it will sit on highway speeds. When I first got there, I wasn't particularly comfortable with the way the guys were acting. They probably took it too far and they were being overly aggressive on the road and I I felt they were probably driving so that they were more of a risk to themselves through traffic accident than they were acting like that as any deterrent from a threat group. In 2004 there was a particular date, 25 October. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened. So it was a very much routine day, um, nothing out of the ordinary. The I had a, the second job of the day. I'd given one of my crew commanders that job off and I'd taken what was the second patrol of the day out. Very much routine, dropping some guys off in the international zone, picking some guys up, heading down Rude Irish to the main US base and the Australian headquarters down there, supposedly dro- dropping some guys off, picking some more up. But um, yeah, at almost exactly 8 o'clock in the morning, we'd, we'd left 
our compound, headed down the road, and probably we didn't get a, we didn't get more than about 600 metres before a, a bomb which was in a car parked on the side of the road detonated as we went past. So we were within a few metres of the bomb that, that went off. What happened then? So there, there were two vehicles. My vehicle was the closest to the blast, and then there was a vehicle in front of us. Me and my crew were knocked out for, for a few seconds, and we were probably doing about 60 kilometres an hour. So we speared off the road uh, onto the median strip and uh, hit a hit a tree. The the forward vehicle lost all their communications, or tripped all their circuit breakers, and so they couldn't communicate. And to be honest, it had kicked up massive um, cloud of dust, so they couldn't really see what was going on. The procedure for that was that they should move to the, the nearest secure checkpoint, fix their vehicle, then return to us, which is exactly what happened. When they got back to us, an angry crowd had gathered. So in the bomb blast, at least three people were killed, two of which were the two children, which would sort of wave at us every day as we went past. So crowds in those circumstances are extremely volatile. Uh, it was explained to me that they they don't blame you for the bomb going off per se, but they look at you and say, well, if you weren't here, that bomb wouldn't have gone off. And these are family members, relatives, neighbours of these people who had just been killed or like some of the others, they're you know, horrifically wounded in this bomb blast. So my vehicle was there on its own. I was completely incapacitated, but luckily my driver and my gunner, so the guy next to me in, my turret, in the turret and the, the guy who drives the vehicle had enough nows and were, were physically able to get out of the vehicle, pull their weapons and just keep people off climbing on the car, basically. I'd come come to in the bottom of the turret. I just dropped when the bomb went off, but knocked, knocked out, out cold. Came to down the bottom of the turret, couldn't see and I couldn't breathe and I didn't really know what had happened. I, I assumed that I'd been shot in the head. It sounds like a funny thing to assume, but we'd had fairly new vehicles, a, a new variant of the vehicle. They'd just changed them slightly so the hatch that used to sit up directly behind your head, you could actually fold flat. And one of my sergeants said, no, don't fold it flat because it gives you protection behind you. So if somebody shoots at you, you know, it's an extra ballistic protection. But I'd said, no, no, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm the lieutenant, I'm the troop leader, I need to see everything that's going on. So I folded mine flat. So when I came to in the bottom of the turret, my natural assumption, my first assumption was that that sergeant had been right and somebody had shot me in the back of the head as we drove past. I, the first thing I did was sort of reach and feel around my, my head and to you know, somewhat relief, didn't find a hole in my head which I thought I may have found. I prized my eyes open and realised that I, you know, I still could see. Whatever, for whatever reason, my eyes, I couldn't keep them open. Obviously, I was quite bloodied and burnt as well. After trying a few times, I let out a bit of a whimper and started breathing properly after that. And I guess once I'd done those three things, I started thinking somewhat sensibly and pulled myself up onto the, the ammunition bin in the middle of the turret and tried to get a grip of what was happening in the situation. Luckily, my, my gunner and my, my driver, like I said, were, were out pro providing that security. And I started, you know, shouting at my gunner to get the radios going, get our QRF coming in. Luckily, he had a much better perspective of the situation and dutifully ignored me and just got on with providing that intimate security that we needed at the time. And within a, within a couple of minutes, that, that forward vehicle had fixed their circuit breakers, got their radios going and returned back to the site, provided a cordon. A US patrol, which was nearby, also came and added additional troops to the cordon. And my quick reaction force, which again was only at our compound 600 metres down the road, arrived and I was picked up and taken to the Coalition Support Hospital, which was a couple of kilometres across the Tigris in the international zone. So what was the recovery process like then? 
I was rolled into theatre almost straight away. The most dangerous thing I had was a bit of fragmentation nick in the side of my neck, a reasonable wound, but it nicked the artery. And I initially had sort of a quite a large hematoma in my neck and they were worried that was going to cut off supply, blood supply to my brain. So I was rolled into theatre almost straight away and they operated on that. That was the most dangerous. Initially, I had second-degree burns to my face and neck. But in the longer term, the more dangerous wounds I had were in my basically in my, my forehead, so along the line of my eyebrow, I had a hole and a hole just above my, my right eye. So the bridge of my nose and my right eye, the hole in the bridge of my nose, the fragmentation had also damaged the bone between my sinus and my brain. So they were quite worried about infection getting into my brain. So the process was that I, I went to hospital in Baghdad, had initial surgery for my neck and to get some of the big bits out of my face. Was there for about two days and bundled into a helicopter and flown in the middle of the night up about an hour north, or a 15-minute helicopter ride, about an hour on the road to the main logistics base in in Iraq at the time. So everything that came into the country came in through Balad, but it had a large medical unit up there as well. So I was taken up there by helicopter, assessed as right to continue the flight to Germany. So I was flown to Germany. I went to Langstuhl Hospital there. I had another lot of surgery there, mainly to get a lot of the other chunks out of my sinuses and out of my face and neck. I was peppered with bits of fragmentation and bits of asphalt and and the like. And then flown back to Sydney to Liverpool Hospital and the medical unit out at Holsworthy Base. And I had a final surgery there to basically close the holes yeah, that was, uh, and spent another week in it at Holsworthy. So it was about a, about a three-week process all up before I was released on convalescence leave. Luckily, my sister was living in Manly, so I had a good place to convalesce. How much time did you take off then? So it was, it ended up being a couple of months, but to be honest, um, my normal army posting cycle kicked in and you get posted to a unit for about every two years. So I was actually getting posted from Darwin to Brisbane. So I, I went back up to the unit a few weeks after that just to pack up a few things and pack up our house, and we went to Brisbane from there. So I was still pretty stiff and sorry, and I looked like I'd been in the bottom of a scrum of a rugby match. But um, I guess I was very lucky in a lot of respects because, you know, from below my neck, I was pretty good um, because it was only my neck and shoulders which were exposed up above armour and took the brunt of the blast. So that's 2004, and the following year you then decide to give your then fiancé, Crystal, some shocking news that you're actually going to go back for some more in Iraq. Yeah. You know, what, what motivated you to go back? Uh, a lot of, and, you know, she still queries me on this too, don't worry. I guess in some ways, I mean, to put it in perspective of any soldier, they all feel that going on operations is doing the job for real. Otherwise, it's just training. You know, nobody wants to train for something and never get to do it for real. So there was that aspect, which I, I definitely felt that I, I hadn't properly done the job because I left Iraq the first time really only having been there for two months. So I was keen, I was keen to go back and keep doing that job. About 18 months later, I, I ended up going back and I was a rank higher and I was in a position where I was the second in command of the combat team, so really the operations officer for want of a better term. So I planned all the training, I ran the day-to-day activities for the organisation and I thought, particularly with my experience, having personally been involved in a blast, having already seen Baghdad, having seen the way we operate over that and also having a an in-depth understanding of the threat. I felt that I was the best person to be in that role. That was probably the key driving force for me to go back, just the knowledge that I, I couldn't think of a better person to be doing that job than me. And when you get there, how do you find Iraq? 
I, I found it quite different than 2004. 2004 was it was a city trying to get on with life, whereas 2006, it was a city under siege. The mentality of the population had shifted dramatically. About a million people had left the city um, in that time. And rather than the city functioning like a normal capital city, it stopped functioning like that. People stopped any kind of enjoyment in life and people were just, just trying to survive. Yeah, I mean, it was really at its height of insurgency at that time. It was, yes. And consequently, it was a different city and and a whole different operation for you, really. That's right. I mean, during that time as well, Saddam Hussein had been captured and we went to a base which was actually inside the international zone. So the organisation, whilst it was the same organisation, it was there doing the same task of protecting the diplomatic staff, the compound that they worked out of had moved. So we were actually just over the back gate of the old Ba'ath Party headquarters where Saddam Hussein was being tried for war crimes. So every morning, this convoy of dark buses and armoured vehicles would trundle in the back gate behind our compound with Saddam Hussein in it. So in some ways, it was quite interesting. You know, we, we felt like we were, we were part of history in the making, um, just, being, just being situated where yeah, we were. Right at the epicentre. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 22nd of April 2006, tragedy again strikes with the shocking death of Private Jacob Kovko. Mm. You were at the other end of the radio when the call came in. Can you tell me what happened then and, and in the early morning? Yeah, that's, I, hadn't, I haven't thought about this for a while. but you're, um, Yeah, so I got, a, I got a call, which is, I guess, as a military officer, one of the calls that you are always dreading getting on the radio. So I got a call, I can't remember specifically word for word, but it was priority one friendly casualty gunshot wound to the head, basically from the embassy. So a platoon of our infantry guys where Jake was were based at the embassy and they called into my headquarters, which was down the road a couple of kilometres. So and prior, prior one casualty means life-threatening injury needs medical treatment within an hour. Gunshot wound to the head, somewhat self-explanatory. But that obviously doesn't set a very good picture in anyone's mind for the condition of that person, and that proved to be completely right. I can tell you what happened. I can't tell you how it happened because I still don't know. So Private Kovko was one of the infantry soldiers who at the time was providing security to the Australian Embassy in the international zone. In his accommodation with two other soldiers there, he somehow shot himself in the head with his pistol. All I can believe is that it was somehow a mistake. I in no way believe it was the act of a suicidal man. Um, whilst I say I don't know exactly how it happened, I don't know. We had several steps in place to ensure that nobody was in a position in their accommodation with a loaded pistol so they could accidentally shoot themselves in the head. So I don't know how it occurred that he'd somehow missed those safeguards and he was in his room with a pistol. I mean, you had to deal with the pain of losing a fellow soldier so mm. senselessly. But one bungle after another just made matters worse. Yeah, it did. And it, um, there were days where it just seemed completely surreal that there, there could be that series of uh, bungles. I think that's a fair term to use. Just, you know, so there, was, um, there were some things which were just bad luck and there were some other things which, you know, people could have just been doing better jobs. But at the end of the day, yeah, we, we still had a job to do and there were... Um, 110 soldiers in Baghdad who had to get on, keep getting on with the job there. How do you think his death affected the unit? I always felt that Jake dying the way he did probably had a much greater effect on the unit than if we'd lost, you know, four guys in combat because nobody was expecting to lose people that way and because there was so much, so much around, you know, the, the conspiracy theories that were drummed up 
back here in Australia, the wrong body going home, the report getting lost. A draft copy of the inquiry was left on a disc in the Qantas Club lounge um, by the person who was writing it. I guess even initially the defence minister at the time said he was cleaning his rifle in the accommodation. Somebody had just made an assumption that's what was occurring mm. and when it turned out that he'd shot himself with a pistol that obviously took away some, some credibility to any sort of story about it initially. So the, the media jumped onto that. The wrong body obviously was horrific for the family to then understand that there was a body sitting at the airport where they were waiting for it that wasn't their son. Their son was still in, in a morgue back in Baghdad. All these sorts of things just had so much of an impact on the guys. They had they had 24-hour access to the internet. They had phone lines they could call home. So they were exposed to everything that was being said in the newspapers. Um, some of which was, you know, calling their professionalism and their integrity into question, mm. um, which as a soldier is the last thing you want anyone to do. Garth, what else happened in that second tour that's memorable to you? It was, it was an extremely busy tour. There was always something going on. And there were, there were a couple of other incidents of note. There was a, a shooting incident with some of our, our vehicle patrol, which killed an Iraqi security guard. And there was a rocket attack on our compound, which injured some of the soldiers as well. So we didn't really get a minute's rest. But I, I found the tour, whilst tragic in a lot of ways, so professionally rewarding. And I was working with some awesome people. I guess one of the funnier points from it, and because it wasn't all doom and gloom over there, we were working with some excellent people. And the harder things get, sometimes, you know, the more people turn to humour. We'd been there for a while, and it wasn't that long after Jake had died that the grass was getting along there, and I was the guy who had to come up with a plan just for keeping the whole place running, and I saw the grass was getting along, and it's hard to get contractors in to mow the grass. So I thought, an easy way here is to get a goat in, and we can have a bit of a mascot. Of course, it was against all sort of rules to have any sort of pets in military accommodation but I managed to twist a few arms and we got a goat brought in by one of the local contractors found this you know really you're really cute little goat unbeknownst to me goats are terrible at keeping grass short they pull grass out by the roots so rather we still had long grass it was just with patches of dirt through it but I said before we had that rocket attack on the compound so a rocket came in at six o'clock one morning there were a few injured and there was a few badly injured but no one was killed and and, and everyone's back up and walking so it's it, it, it's not a really tragic story but we did have the one of the generals fly in to inspect our compound and the damage and talk to the troops that day and of course we're all we kind of forgotten about the goat and that we weren't supposed to have one so my boss was giving him a tour of the place and uh, the general said oh can you show me you know your room and his, my, my boss's room it was only two down from the room that was hit by the rocket and as they went to go in the door this goat ran out of his room <laughs> with a, a rubber glove I don't know where the rubber glove came from but a rub, rubber glove hanging out of its mouth and uh, of course the company sergeant major was standing behind everyone and my boss gave him a nudge and said oh, sergeant major take care of this goat and he said, yes sir and went and grabbed the goat and dragged it away so you know there was there was some funny funny stuff even in the, the height of a height of a rocket attack you know that was a a really funny event and, and did the goat have a name the goat had a name the goat's name it's a female goat it was called Victor and it got that name because we had... So during the time you're there, and it's actually a bit of a, a common practice for soldiers to make a video of their team when they're overseas, you know, something they can look back on, but also something to keep their minds, you know, rest and relaxation, make a video of the boys. So every team we had there, and, and 110-man combat team was broken up into 10-man sections or, you know, four-man vehicle crews. We had about 20 or so videos and we got the embassy staff over one night to view the videos and vote on who made the best video. And the prize was to name the goat. 
the night went a bit haywire and I think there was a tie in the end and the winner was was found from a dance-off in the end, which was, you know, pretty horrific. And, yeah, the cavalry troop won the prize and the, the call sign for a cavalry troop is Victor. So they named the goat Victor. So you finish your tour and you come home. Can you tell us the reception you got when you came home? We got off at Sydney Airport, all still in uniform, and, yeah, we were swamped by a media waiting for us at the gate, coming out of customs, and the, the place was jam-packed. From memory, four of the soldiers, actually including my boss as well, who'd all had children whilst they'd been deployed, so there were at least four couples there introducing children to their father. So, so after your deployment, you're back home, you're safe, Crystal's getting used to having you around... And then in 2009, you decide you're going to go to Afghanistan. So getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. And for me, it gave me this deep-seated curiosity in understanding the improvised explosive device threat. I pestered all the right people until uh, in late 2007, I got posted into a role where I could work in that field. So I, I got posted to Canberra to a group called the Counter IED Task Force, Counter Improvised Explosive Device Task Force, which would look really at the strategic level, getting new equipment in, so the best radio jammers to stop radio-controlled IEDs, the best ballistic protection to stop blast, you know, the best robots for explosive ordnance disposal crews to use. Also, what training we were doing, so looking at the training packages to counter or to minimise the threat, and also looked at what they call technical intelligence. So understanding the IED incidents from a intelligence perspective, so linking them together, understanding supply chains, understanding how you can minimise the threat or even target insurgents who are building or emplacing these devices. So I got very interested in that over late 2007, 2008, and then in 2009 an opportunity came up to lead a team into Afghanistan to do tactical post-blast exploitation and technical intelligence work. So going out to bomb sites, recovering componentry, recovering evidence, reverse engineering the devices, understanding every aspect of a bomb incident. And there's that sort of mantra that we used, which is no IED incident ever happens in isolation. There's always a link to something else. And we were working to understand what that was, to identify insurgent cells. So, so there were two main things we were trying to do. Number one was to understand the weapons being used against coalition forces so we could develop training, develop equipment to minimise and mitigate the risk of those threats, but also understand everything we could about the insurgent teams so we could feed that into the intelligence network so we could base operations around targeting those insurgent groups. So you basically became the go-to man for any bombsite or explosive situation in the Tarrant area. Look, it got a stress. I, I wasn't the guy disarming, um, disarming the bombs. Not, not my bag at all. Um, but we would work hand in hand with those guys. So they would disarm them, and we would then go in and do that post-blast exploitation. They call it. In November, you had a four-day stopover in a remote patrol base. That experience changed your perspective on the work the coalition forces were doing in Afghanistan. Can you tell us more about that? We'd rushed down to the helicopter and somehow talked. This was a medical helicopter and somehow managed to talk the loadmaster into letting us in the back, which is a big no-no, letting anyone in the back of a medical helicopter. But we managed to do that. They flew us out to a site because we'd heard on the radio there'd been a bomb blast and there was at least two injured out there. So we went out to a site out in... Um, just near one of the Australian patrol bases in the Tarrant Bowl near the Dorishan River. 
and one Australian had been wounded and from memory it was two Afghan soldiers had been wounded as well. So we, we basically got piffed out of the helicopter as these casualties were loaded in and the helicopters took off and we were there in the middle of a paddock and we went down and talked to the Australians there who said, yes, bomb went off, here, here it is. We did that, you know, the post-blast work on the site there determined what the device was understood the trends of what the coalition the afghan soldiers have been doing why they were targeted all those sorts of things so did all that sort of work and then walked back to the patrol base with them so it was a couple of kilometers wrote the reports but i think because we talked our way onto that helicopter we'd probably annoyed some of the people at the headquarters when they found out what we'd done so i think um for some sort of retribution they just didn't pick us up for four days and left us out there completely fair but we it meant that we got to live with the guys out at patrol base. So there were a group of 10 Australian soldiers, about 30 Afghan soldiers out in this isolated patrol base, and they were out there for months on end. The Australian's role was to mentor the Afghan soldiers. And I, of course I knew all this, but I just hadn't experienced it for any length of time or seen what these guys do. And, you know, for example, that incident occurred, and then the very next day the young Australian lieutenant and a warrant officer the hierarchy of the australian group there had to go and speak to the afghan soldiers and coax them into going out on patrol the next day even when they'd been hit by a bomb the day before and i i guess i'd always felt from my time in iraq and until that time from my time in afghanistan that you know these stories that you hear about about world war ii and vietnam era guys i, I never felt that the work we were doing compared to any of that but then I saw what these guys were doing out at that patrol base and thought no this is this is as hairy work as any Australians have done before yes of course maybe it doesn't compare to the trenches on the western front but it was guys who were dealing with life and death issues all day every day having to get off the get over their own fears and work with Afghan soldiers getting them out of the gate of the compound when they didn't want to for so many different reasons to go and show the Taliban show the enemy that they weren't deterred by you know a bomb blast by a bomb attack so you leave the war and you return home safely and four days after you're back, your youngest daughter Zoe's born. You get two days off, in, uh, two weeks off in the middle of your deployment. So we'd met in France and she, I already knew she was pregnant then, but she brought a letter from the doctor and none of us knew the, the sex of the baby, but the doctor had written it on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope for us. So she came over and we met in Paris and with our 18-month-old at that stage as well. And we found out that we were having another girl. So that was, that was a lovely treat. And yes, got back and four days later I was doing what they call decompression training. So just going, turning up to work, doing what paperwork you need to do, answering some emails that had been left for nine months, that sort of stuff. And I got a call. She's saying, oh, I think you better come home. I'm having contractions. And Zoe was born. So people say, oh, that was good planning. And I say, yep, that was good, good planning. <laughs> and why did you go through that decompression training? It's really unhealthy to come back from a war zone. You know, if you think those guys sitting at patrol bases for months on end under constant threat of rocket attack, going out patrolling every day, constant threat of bomb attacks. It's unhealthy to get on a plane, fly back to Australia and go on leave for a couple of months because most of these guys had a couple of months leave in their book by the time they got back. So decompression training is just going to work. Getting back into some normality in your routine, maybe going out and have, having a few beers. There's you know the talk that it's better to, to have a few beers with the guys you've been working with for the last nine months rather than go home and have a few beers with your wife. It's much better to get things off your chest mm. with the blokes who have been there rather than a wife or a spouse who may not understand some of the things that you've been through. So when did you leave the army and why? 
So I left. Uh, I left. Technically, I left in uh, in August 2013. It's a regular military, but I really hadn't put on uniform since January that year. So I just had a lot of leave and long service leave up, up my sleeve. My last year had been as a squadron commander, so I was in charge of about 120 guys and nearly 40 armoured vehicles up at my, at my old regiment, the Second Cavalry Regiment, which was a nice way to end. There was a bit of pressure for me to go to back to Af- Afghanistan, and it's always volunteer, so that no one was ever going to force me. But I made me really assess things and go, well, I, I don't. I really don't want to go back to Afghanistan. I've got two young children. Eva, my, who was five at that, that stage, my eldest, I had missed years of her life. She was only five years old. And I, you know, didn't want, didn't, didn't want to keep missing really important milestones in their life. So, yeah, it became a really, a really easy decision to make. My, my wife and I discussed it and she said, yep, I think it's time that you get out of the army. And she'd never said that before, so. You knew it was time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, Garth, we're back at home, and in 2016, the New South Wales Veterans Employment Program was launched by the state government, with you spearheading the project. Mm. Yeah, so it worked out really well, and it's something I, I, I... Once I left the military, it became really clear to me that civilian employers do not understand what a military person brings to the workplace. Uh, I saw some really high-caliber people that I'd worked with over the years really struggle for appropriate employment. I, you know, I don't think there's a widespread unemployment issue with with ex-military people but I truly believe there is a widespread underemployment issue. I got into this work because of that it just was the right thing for me to be doing. I'd been really lucky I'd gone into a job initially doing risk consultancy work which is an easy fit for ex-military people and to be honest the office was full of ex-military people and then the next role I went into was specifically to do with the work that I'd done in the counter ID role but it was technology development space so I'd been really lucky but that was because I'd I'd happened to specialise. A lot of my peers, my juniors and superiors who hadn't necessarily specialised, a lot of them really struggled with work and I'm the first to admit I'm, I'm a mediocre officer. There were some really high calibre people out there who were just being overlooked for roles um, and so were taking jobs which were well below their capacity. I, I saw it as just such a lose-lose situation. The individuals were losing out but also industry and government were missing out on these people who, quite honestly, taxpayers had already invested significantly in their training and I just saw it was a ridiculous waste. You've also written a book about your time in the military called After the Blast. That led to me getting the job. So I wrote the book, which was based on my three deployments, and it was really just uh, a journal a journal that I'd kept overseas I turned into a book. But as part of the book launch, you, um, you do all these cheesy sort of book tours around the place. And I was getting asked all the time about veteran welfare. You know, what can we do to help veteran welfare by people in the audience? And I said to them, look, I quite honestly, get them into the right jobs. Make the transition really easy by shaking up your employment practices so military people can move into jobs which are in line with their skills and capability and experience. And I happened to be, what was I doing? I was was on Sky News saying all that sort of stuff one day. After I finished the interview, the New South Wales Minister for Veterans Affairs, David Ellett, his Chief of Staff, rang me up out of the blue and said, look, I've just seen you drawing off about veteran employment on Sky News. Can you put your money where your mouth is and apply for a job which we've just opened up? running a veterans employment program in, in New South Wales government. So the planet's aligned really um, with that opportunity and it's, it really is a, a great opportunity to, to get employers understanding what a military person brings to the, to the workforce. Helping ex-military people also understand that to get the right job they need to be able to articulate what they can provide a workplace in a way that a civilian employer can understand it. There is quite a lot of issues there to overcome but uh, yeah, we're moving along. 
So Garth, if people are interested in getting in contact with you or finding out more about your book, where do they find you? Do you have a Facebook page? Yeah, so I have a personal Facebook page. There is a After the Blast Facebook page. For Veterans Employment, the Facebook is at New South Wales Veterans Employment. That's got links to our website as well. You know, or just Googling New South Wales Government Veterans Employment and they'll find their way to the, to the website too quite easily. So Garth, after all these overseas deployments and what you've been through, what's next after what you're doing now? I would love to know. Apparently it's common in, uh, for a lot of people in society, but it's definitely common in the veteran space as well, which people, because they've done such a variety of roles, you know, I've done specialist roles, I've done very much generalist leadership management roles, I've worked in a range of jobs while still in the military. Stepping out, I've you know, I feel like I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. So there is not an obvious job for me to, to slide into. But like with most people, I'm very comfortable in getting thrown in the deep end in any job, which is kind of what I've done since I've left the military anyway. Gar, thank you for your service and taking the time to talk to us today. And we look forward to the next story you're going to tell us. My pleasure. Thanks, Angus. That was Angus Horden speaking with Garth Callender. To connect with Garth online, do search for his book page on Facebook, After the Blast. Garth's book, After the Blast, is available in bookstores and online. For all the photos and the full story, you really should check it out. Speaking of photos, we have a few up of Garth now on our social media pages. Look us up on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. You can email us too at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. If you like the episode, make sure you're subscribed for all veteran conversations on Tuesdays and bonus content on Fridays. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, do get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and as always, lest we forget.